0: Well, good morning again. It's good to be together. It's good to sing. It's good to celebrate and remember and rejoice over and rely upon Christ and through communion. And it's good to come to God's word together. If you wouldn't mind, uh, open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 5. And as you're turning there, I want to remind and encourage you that uh, this coming week, not this week, sorry, in two weeks, I guess, if you count this week. So, yes, after the 12th. Uh, our life groups are kicking back up um, and we're expanding out a few more life groups uh, we have a variety of options that you can consider and encourage you to to look at those on our website trinitynh.org and you can see the options that we have there for our life groups that are going to be resuming soon um, so this week you have the opportunity to get signed in plugged in And uh, we would really encourage you to do that. There are some open spaces on some of the groups. Uh, A couple of them are just about closed. And so if you haven't done that yet, I'd encourage you to to do that soon. All right. As we continue on, um, these gospel exhortations that we're getting in in Ephesians chapter 5 last week, Ryan tackled, uh, you know, a a weighty subject matter and, and did so in encouraging ways bolstering our faith and, and challenging our lives. And this continues on as Paul continues to apply the gospel to the way that we live. And we're going to be looking at verses 15 through 21 of Ephesians chapter 5. Let's read those words. Let's see those words together. Beginning in verse 15. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Let's take a moment to pray. God, as we come to your word, we certainly ask for you to be at work uh, in this moment, in this time. As we put our thoughts, set our affections on who you are and what you've revealed to us through your word, I pray that as a preach, you would be glorified, that your people would be built up, that lost people would be saved, and that your word would go forth into our hearts and bear good fruit. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes we look around the world around us, and it seems like everyone else is having more fun. They get to do And live however they want. And it doesn't really seem to matter one way or another. It doesn't really seem to have any profound impact. They get to do whatever they want. The author of Psalm 73 said, This made this observation. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Psalm 73 is very interesting. The psalmist continues on in his, are you sure you really want to be this honest complaint? Uh, But eventually, he walks his heart back to a sovereign and gracious God. Later, he says this, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. A similar struggle was occurring in the churches that were found in the region of Ephesus. They looked around and everybody else seemed to be having a whole lot more fun and it didn't really matter what they did or how they had that fun. It didn't really seem to impact their lives all that much. They still got to have all the fun that they wanted. And the Apostle Paul wanted to walk their hearts back to a sovereign and gracious God. And perhaps this will be timely for us too. These exhortations uh, that, that we find here in Ephesians 5 are, are really helping us to see how important it is and how important the gospel is to our living out our faith, the living out of our lives, how we walk. We're certainly to look carefully how we walk, and these gospel exhortations are for gospel fruit in our lives, gospel fruit in how we walk. And there are really two main big ideas about gospel fruit and how we walk. The first that we'll see is that the gospel fruit and how we walk is that we are walking wisely. Now, we are walking wisely, and we'll dig into what that means. And secondly, we are going to see how gospel fruit and how we walk shows up is in that we are walking filled, that we are walking filled. Filled. walking wisely and walking filled. The fruit of the gospel in us helps us to look at life and live it out wisely and to look at life and live it out filled. Not asking for it to give something to us that God has already given to us through Christ by the power of the Spirit. So that is gospel fruit in how we walk and that's what we're going to consider together. So first let's consider walking wisely. Look again at verses 15 through 17. 15 through 17. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. So we are called to walk wisely, that the fruit of the gospel in our lives is that we are growing at walking wisely. But wise to what? First of all, it's wise to the gospel. It's wise to the gospel. The context of the letter helps us understand the wise. If you were to survey the first three chapters of Ephesians, you would find a lot of references to to wise or to wisdom. And and in that, we see that we are to be wise to the saving purposes of God that are all wrapped up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We see that in chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. That we would be wise to the saving purposes of God. Wrapped up in Jesus Christ. That we would also have a growing grasp. Of the depth and the magnitude. And the relevance of the gospel in our lives. We see Paul pray that in Ephesians 1, 17 through 19 And then we find that. It is the wisdom of God. That he is showing off his grace. Through this thing called the church. That the church reveals God's glorious, redemptive purposes and grace. And we find that in Ephesians 3.10. So there's shaping our thoughts about what it means to be wise. So walking as an unwise person would mean to walk aloof to the gospel of Christ. Or to walk in a way that ignores the relevancy of the gospel to your daily lives. Or even to just flat out reject what God has made in the church to reject the body of Christ. That would be to walk unwise, to be aloof to the gospel, to ignore the gospel, or to reject the church. That would be unwise walking for the person of Christ. Walking wisely, though, means some other things. Additionally, as it sinks into our lives. So first of all, we find... That it is to embrace Christ through faith. Walking wise embraces Christ through faith. That's what the heart of this letter is all about. That we would grow in our grasp of the gospel's magnitude. That is gospel doctrine. And that we would embrace life in the local church. That is gospel culture. The Paul, Paul has been stressing this to the churches in Ephesus. That what we believe and how we live matter, and both are shaped by the gospel. And that through embracing Christ through faith, that we are growing in our grasp of both the magnitude and the immediacy of what God has supplied for us. So we embrace Christ through faith. Then Paul goes on to say that we make the best use of time. That we make the best use of the time, our time. Make the most of the opportunity to live out this this rescued life in this world. Literally, it means to redeem the time that we would infuse daily life with gospel-shaped purposes. So far in Ephesians, this means to avoid worldly ways of living and to embrace Christ-centered ways of living. But within that, we find that to redeem the time is that we would be eager to make much of Jesus to each other, with each other, but also to those who don't know Jesus, who are outside of knowing God and and have no hope in this world. That we would be eager to be people who make the most of our days, the most of our time, by making much of Jesus. That we don't stop making much of Jesus because we belong to a church. But if anything, we want to go make much more of Jesus because... Of what God has done in our lives and and what he's united us to in the church. We go about making the best use of our time. And if we want to make the best use of our time, then there's nothing better to make much of than to make much of Jesus. We have a little extra descriptor of why this is so imperative and why it's so important for our hearts, for our church, for our moment and the point and places in which we live because the days around us are evil. It means that we live in a day and age where sin is present, both overtly, you can't miss it, and subversively. It's at work behind things. So this means we are to redeem the time carefully. That what we look at when we look at the church for one is that we are banding together to say to one another to encourage each other to equip each other to say and live in light of the fact that Jesus is worth it there are so many competing things in the world in which we live that want your heart and so as a church family, we're saying to each other in our commitment together, in our gathering for worship, in our intentionality in community, and with the purpose of being on mission, that Jesus is indeed worth it, that He is greater than all the various pulls that you can feel in this world. Whether those are to comfort, or to pleasure, or to power, or to possessions, or to acceptance, or to validation, whatever that might be, that we're reminding each other with great joy and great hope for one another that Jesus is worth it. Now when we realize that we are called to make the best use of time, that's part of our walking wisely and reminding each other that the days around us are evil, that it also serves to help us see that we need each other that we need each other. But walking wisely is having the awareness that you need other people in your life. Now some of us have capacities that are different than others. Some of us have a capacity for lots of people in our lives. And we want all the more. There's all more, all more room. Come on in. And others of us have the capacity for one, maybe 1.2. And that's depending on the day and depending on if you had your coffee or not, right? Regardless of our capacities for the amount of, ki- of people in our lives, the reality is we need each other. We need each other in our lives. We need each other, not just in our life stage, we need all of the life stages around us. Yes, we need those who are going through similar things to go through those together. And we need those who, haven't, who, who have gone through those things. And we also need those who haven't gone through those things because those perspectives are helpful for us to walk wisely and to remember that Jesus is worth it. That's why I would plug a life group right here. A life group is going to have all of those different perspectives in a, in a tangible way to, to experience how much we need each other. So we see that walking wisely makes the best use of time and, and knows that the days that we live in are, are evil and they want to pull us away from following after Jesus. So our walking wisely together is to help each other see that Jesus is worth it. And that we need each other. And it also helps us remember something very important. That people without God are without hope. And that there are people in our lives, maybe in our neighborhoods, maybe in our workplaces, maybe in our families, maybe in our immediate homes, that are without God and therefore without hope. And while there are a lot of cultural tensions in our day and age, people without God and who are without hope, they desperately need someone in their life to offer to them that which is real hope. To be tangibly present in their lives, bringing to them someone who follows after God, clings to Jesus, and wants them to to know the sovereign grace of God as well. We need these things in our lives to walk wisely, that Jesus is worth it, that we need each other, and that there are a whole bunch of people without God and without hope. So as we consider what does it look like to walk wisely, we embrace Christ through faith and we make the best use of time and we go about our lives seeking to understand the will of Christ. As verse 17 says, understand what the will of the Lord is. And he has some comparisons. First of all, he says, not as foolish. So that's sort of countering the idea of walking wisely. So not to walk as foolish. The word for foolish is rooted in the Old Testament. It's, it's deeply rooted in the Old Testament. And the Old Testament concept of a fool is, well, it's abundantly clear. Uh, Psalm 14, verse 1 famously says this, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Psalm 74, verse 18 says that a foolish people revile God's name. And then Proverbs 1, 7, and Proverbs as a whole is making that comparison of living wisely to living foolishly. um, And it captures it all in verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So a fool says there's no God. A fool reviles God. A fool despises God. In short, a fool is someone. This is the Bible's description and definition of a fool. The use of fool in the Bible is that a fool is someone who lives as if there is no God with which to be bothered. And that would be a foolish way to live. Instead of being foolish, we see that there is a God that He can be known, He can be loved, He can be followed through faith in Christ. And therefore, we can go about understanding then the Lord's will. will. Not rejecting it, or reviling it, or say it doesn't really matter, but rather embrace it. There's a couple of ways to understand the Lord's will on a macro level and on a micro level. So the macro picture of understanding the Lord's will is that we understand what we believe that God's redemptive purposes are wrapped up in Jesus. Paul spent 3 chapters of Ephesians helping us understand this macro picture. What do we we want to know what God's will is? Well, we find it wrapped up and summed up in Jesus. His will for time and creation and history, it's wrapped up in Jesus. Now the micro picture of understanding the Lord's will helps us see how the gospel shapes how we live. And that's what Paul does in the second half of his letter. He's walking us through the micro picture of how the gospel shows up in the way that we live so macro, this is God's purposes in all of history, wrapped up in Jesus. Micro level, this is how relevant that is for the way that we live. It's about how you live out your life. That's understanding the Lord's will. Now let me say what that expression, understanding the Lord's will, is not. It is, it is often and commonly used... As a description for people to fret over personal decisions that they're making throughout life. Where are you going to live? Or what school are you going to go to? Who are you going to date? Who are you going to marry? Maybe even as silly as like, you know, what coffee shop or restaurant should I go to this week? We can fret over that and we want to know the Lord's will for these sort of daily minutiae or these big decisions in life. The phrase understanding the Lord's will is not associated with that. It's understanding the big picture of God's purposes wrapped up in Jesus and how we live. Maybe not so much where we live, with whom we live. We have a tendency to hyper-individualize this phrase. And we miss the context in which it's even given. This is instructions for the church. This is instructions for the church. The context is in the life of a church where gospel, doctrine and gospel culture meet. So Lord's purpose is for our lives or that we would understand His big purpose for all things wrapped up in Jesus, and how then the gospel shapes how we live out what it is that we do and where we do it. Now, that's walking wisely. That's walking wisely. This is how the gospel starts to sink into our thinking and the way that we look at life and then live it out. And we walk as if God is worth it, that God is ultimate, that there isn't anything better, that we can't find anything better to invest our lives in and encourage each other in and to labor for. Secondly, we see that we are to be walking filled. Walking filled. Let's look at verses 18-21 again. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. But be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In this, in these things, Um, few verses here we see a tension of competing values the world in which we live and the kingdom in which we're rescued to there's competing values that we face each and every day there will not be a day in which that tension of those competing values is not before us until the day that christ returns or we return to him And so the first thing he emphasizes here is drunkenness. Why? Why drunkenness? In the midst of some general and sweeping admonition, Paul seems to get strangely specific here. And so we have to stop and ask why. Is it because of a particular issue that was showing up in the churches in Ephesus? Is it because of the pagan cultic backdrop of that day? In which drunkenness was associated with religious practices of the pagan religions around them? Is it because of the light-dark contrast that Paul has been making that you saw and heard last week? In a sense, it is yes to all of those reasons. But even more pointedly, we will see why in the contrast of drunkenness and all that it represents and comparing that with being filled and all that it represents... There are competing values, the values of the world in which we live in, and the values of the kingdom in which we have been rescued to. So this isn't necessarily about whether a Christian should drink, but it's really getting at a whole way of life. So what does then drunkenness mean? Well, it forcefully speaks and draws out an imagery to our minds of a way of living that is ultimately the culmination of foolishness. To live as if there's no God that you needed to be mindful of or bothered with. To live as if you are choosing and pursuing the things that will fill you is a culmination of foolishness. It's walking foolishly, chasing something that gives way to pursuing some sort of escape or some sort of acceptance or some sort of validation. And I would say it's a regrettable way to chase after joy, waking up The pounding headache of emptiness. It's competing world values, one in which God is at the center and one in which God doesn't exist. That's what drunkenness is really getting after. Which way are we going to walk? Are we going to walk in a way that God exists and He relates to us through the gospel, or the way in which God doesn't exist and do what you want? There are all sorts of consequences that come with those two ways. Instead, Paul draws our attention, instead of being drunk, be filled. Be filled. Be filled with the Spirit. Interesting contrast. Both are filling you up, leading to very different outcomes. Again, the tension between two competing values. So I want to ask us three questions about this being filled with the Spirit. Question one is how is one filled? Question two is, what is one filled with? And question three is, what does it look like to be filled? So the first question about being filled with the Spirit. Walking filled. How is one filled? Well, our English translations, most of them would say something on the lines of with the Holy Spirit. But the with can kind of be confusing. Is it the content or the means? Is it... Is it the content that we're filled, we're filled with the content of the Spirit, or is the means of being filled the Holy Spirit? The with here is to be taken as an instrument or the means of being filled, not necessarily the content of what you are filled with. While it is definitely true that believers are indeed filled with the Holy Spirit, this phrase. The way that Paul's using it here is to be understood by the means of being filled is by the Holy Spirit. Some in the Christian world have, confused, have some confusion over this and misappropriate the work and role of the Holy Spirit, making the Holy Spirit the end-all, be-all. But something very important about the Holy Spirit helps us then understand what one is filled with. The Holy Spirit is sent to make much of Jesus... To us. And the Holy Spirit perfectly makes much of Christ to us. Convicts our hearts, comforts our hearts, strengthens our hearts with all that God has done for us in Christ. The Spirit is the means by which we are being filled. So, what then is one filled with? Well, the answer, according to Ephesians, is Christ. Consider what Paul prayed earlier in Ephesians chapter 30, verses 16 through 19. That God may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and depth And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The Spirit is the means by which we are filled. As the Spirit works in filling us, He is fitting us to Christ. That we are growing in Christlikeness. So to walk filled is to walk in growing Christlikeness. So the contrast between being filled with the Spirit and being filled with drunkenness is ultimately a contrast between growing in Christlikeness or growing in worldliness. God's desire for His people, for His church, is to be growing in Christlikeness. And He supplies us Christ, and He supplies us the Spirit to do the work of filling So how do we know if we're being filled? What does it look like then if we're being filled? We'll look again at verses 19 to 21. Let's read those again. How do we know what it looks like? Well, these things are taking root in our hearts and our lives. That we are addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That we're singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That we're giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that we're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. What does it look like to be filled? Well, the first is that we're addressing one another with songs. That's right. When singing to God together, we are also singing to each other. That we're addressing each other. That means we are encouraging one another that He is worth it. That we hear our voices singing is a work that God is also doing in us to encourage us that Jesus is worth it. So when you're singing together, it does not matter if you're pitchy or not. It matters who you're singing to. It matters who you're singing with. So sing. Sing heartily together. Because you gathering together and singing together is a thing that God uses in your hearts and each other's hearts to encourage each other that Jesus is indeed worth it. That's why I've been to other churches, I've been to conferences in which I can't hear anything but what's coming off of the stage. I can't hear the person next to me and it's too much. It's not because I'm getting old and I'm complaining. It's because I need to hear the people that I'm singing with. And what happens when those, those musicians and that worship team, they cut off the sound and it's like the a cappella version of the last verse, right? And we all sing louder all of a sudden. Why? Because we're encouraged. You might think that's not a big deal, but it is a big deal. Here it is in Scripture. Paul says it twice. He says it here and he says it in Colossians. Do this. You're singing together. When you're singing to God, you're also singing to each other. How do you know you're being filled? Because you're eager to sing to each other. How crazy is that? How encouraging is that? There's nothing else in your week that's like it. So don't avoid it. Be a part of it. It's good for your heart. It's good for the heart of those around you. Secondly, how do we know we're being filled? Well, we're also then singing and making music or making melody to the Lord. The corporate vertical joy of making much of Christ together. So not only is there lateral good and joy, but there's vertical good and joy. So when we're singing and making melody, we're, we're bringing all kinds of different parts together and it makes a beautiful sound and it goes to the Lord. And you're part of that. Your redeemed and rescued life in worship of God with other people is a part of this beautiful sound that goes through the Lord and brings Him glory. You're part of that. It's what we get to do together on Sundays when we're gathered like this. We get to be a part of something incredibly special. And it fills us. It strengthens us. It helps us grow Christward helps us walk filled. We need it. What else do we need? Well, we need gratitude. That's the third one that we find here. What does it look like when we're being filled? More and more gratitude marks more and more of our lives. Not grumbling, gratitude. Not greed, gratitude. How do we know we're being filled? Because gratitude is pouring out of us that we're giving thanks to God. And it has Four important characteristics. What does gratitude look like in our lives? Well, listen to this. Very, very important. Four characteristics. It's always. How do you know you're being filled? There's a growing always gratitude in your life. Not a growing always grumbling or a growing always greed, but a growing always gratitude. What does always mean? Well, it means it's something that's real. It's regular. It's constant in your life and in your heart. How do we know we're being filled? That there is a real and regular constant gratitude oozing out of our lives together. What else do we see? Secondly, that's the first characteristic of gratitude the kind of gratitude that shows that we're being filled with the Spirit is that it's always. Secondly, it's for everything. Ah, That's punchy. It's not just the joys, but also the struggles. In the midst of joy or sorrow, gain or loss, we have hearts that are Resting in God and trusting and saying He's worth it, even when it's hard to sing. There's a hymn we sing every once in a while. And there's a line that hits me every single time. Faith can sing through days of sorrow. Our gratitude can be gratitude even in days of sorrow for everything. So gratitude is real, regular, and constant. It's for everything, the joys and the sorrows. Thirdly, third characteristic of this kind of gratitude that shows we're being filled is that it's to God the Father. That it's directional. It's going to God creator and sustainer, author and sustainer of our lives and of our faith. It's Godward in its direction. And then fourthly, it's in the name of Jesus. He is our Redeemer and our Mediator. He's why we have confidence to approach God, to have gratitude for God, to go to God, always for everything, to God the Father in the name of Jesus. Those characteristics take greater root in our lives. And that's a great picture of what gratitude looks like in the midst of our lives. How do we know we're being filled? Well, we're singing to each other. We're singing to the Lord. We're giving thanks to God. And we're submitting, fourthly, to one another. We're called to see that we belong to something bigger than ourselves. And in that call to see that we belong to something bigger than ourselves, we grow at being able to set aside our self-centeredness for a self-giving to help each other be in awe of Jesus. That we submit to one another. And we say, we belong to each other in this church. We're going to encourage and equip and care for one another. Because Jesus is worth it. Because we need each other. And because there are lost people and they need Jesus too. And in so doing, we are learning what it means to walk wisely. And to walk filled. And that this is fruit of the gospel taking greater root in us. And it shows up in these ways in our lives. It's good for us to aim for this and to trust the Lord for it. And we'd be eager to see this all the more in our lives. That phrase, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ, actually serves as an umbrella for the next few sections in which we talk about marriage and home and work. And so we'll be coming back to that verse again and again in the coming weeks. There's a man named William Sleeper. He was a missionary here in New England in the 19th century. He wrote a poem that captured his desire for people that he was trying to reach with the gospel. It's called, Jesus, I Come to Thee. He sent it off to a friend who put music to it so that people could sing it to each other and sing it to the Lord. It's a beautiful hymn that manages to capture so much about life In just four verses. Verse 3 hits especially this morning. And maybe it can serve as a personal plea for you. Here's what it says. Out of unrest and arrogant pride. Jesus I come. Jesus I come. Into thy blessed will to abide. Jesus I come to thee. Out of myself to dwell in thy love. Out of despair into raptures above. Upward for eye on wings like a dove. Jesus, I come to thee. May we sing such words. May we hold on to such words. May such words fill our hearts with such gratitude and hope as we see that Jesus is indeed worth it. Let us pray. God, we ask that you would do that good work in us, that the gospel would bring forth fruit that helps us to walk wisely, and to walk filled, that we would not ask the world to fill us with things that will just leave us empty, that we would ask you, oh, you, to fill us with things that will, that will always keep us full. So God, by your Spirit, would you fill us and strengthen us, and encourage us, and equip us to live as if Jesus is worth it, helping each other and others come to do the same. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. There is one gospel to which I cling, all else I count as loss, for there where justice and mercy meet.